Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly Phillips-Zerb, for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Have you taken a chance on cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple? While various early versions of cryptocurrency have been around for a while, most investors consider the first decentralized cryptocurrency to be Bitcoin, created in 2009. Cryptocurrency is a digital or virtual currency, and cryptocurrency uses a technology called blockchain. Blockchain is a decentralized processing and recording system that offers security and some anonymity, as we know from IRS CI, not complete. Um, In the 2014, the IRS issued guidance to taxpayers, which made it clear that virtual currency like Bitcoin would be treated as a capital asset, um, provided that they could be converted to cash. In simple terms, this means that capital gains rules apply to any gains or losses. As you can imagine, however, since this technology is relatively new, since I mentioned it was mostly created around uh, the 2009 mark. That means that a lot of taxpayers either don't know or can't handle or perhaps don't understand their reporting requirements. This kind of has uh, caught the IRS's attention and the IRS has made cryptocurrency compliance a priority. Um, Last year, the IRS mailed letters to more than 10,000 taxpayers who might have failed to report income and pay the tax from virtual currency transactions. Um, The IRS has also noted that this is going to be a priority for 2020. We've seen the draft 1040 and the question about virtual currency is directly on the front page. All of this can be really confusing. So I've invited an expert to talk to us about crypto and compliance. Today, we have David Kimmerer. David is the co-founder of CryptoTrader.Tax, the leading cryptocurrency tax preparation software. And um, we're very thankful to have you on the program today, David. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be here. Great. So I did a little bit of an intro, obviously, in the beginning. um, But can you explain a little more for the listeners kind of what crypto is and how it works, like in layman's terms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you did a really, a really good job. And it is kind of hard to explain because it really is a lot of things. So it started right with the Bitcoin white paper in 2009 and really the thought process there is that it was a system to enable peer-to-peer payments, right? So enabling a network where two people without an, an intermediary, like a bank, mm-hmm. can send value between each other and you know have that recorded without the use of a third party like a bank. And so that's actually never been able to happen in history, right? There's always the third party and those people become rent seekers, right? Fees get taken you know, for a lot of that that type of transaction. And so sure. Bitcoin was designed to be a peer-to-peer payment system. Now it's it's very much veered from that, right? Today, most people view Bitcoin as a store of value, kind of like a digital gold. Mm-hmm. And a lot of different use cases have sprung up around this idea of cryptocurrency. You mentioned blockchain is that unit of record that allows this decentralized quote-unquote technology. But in a nutshell, that's how it's planned to a layman, right? It was just designed to allow, you know, me to pay you, Kelly, 
some amount of value without a bank having to be in the middle recording that or, you know, swiping my credit card, then paying you, et cetera. Right. And you mentioned digital gold. So I think this is one of the things that's confusing for some listeners who aren't familiar with crypto. So if you have gold or you have coins or you have a checkbook or you have a stock certificate, you have something that you can typically hold in your hand and say, this is a thing that I own of value. Mm -hmm. Obviously, crypto works a little differently. So how do people know that they have something of value? Yeah, this is such a uh, honestly like confusing thing to wrap your head around. But the reality is it's just because other people believe it has value. Very similar to the US dollar, right? It's not actually backed by anything anymore, right? It's right. just a belief system. It's because you believe that my $20 bill is worth $20 and it can go buy goods and services, you and I come to agreement that that has value. It's the exact same way with Bitcoin. Because I can go to an exchange and sell one Bitcoin right now for about $12,000 and someone will buy that, that simply means someone believes that it's valued at $12,000. Gotcha. So that's really the only thing. And I get that that's hard to wrap your head around. But if you go back and look at the history of money, and this is what's so fascinating in the world of crypto is, you know, money and financial services are really being rebuilt in this new way that's honestly better from a techno technological perspective, and it's eliminating the need for third-party rent seekers. But at its core, it's simply a belief system, right? Because people are willing to pay the price that other people are willing to sell it for, it creates this value. Right. And when you mentioned uh, about how folks are increasingly, I think, using it as investment tools, that kind of, I think, plays into the IRS's idea that it's a capital asset, where I think it gets confusing, though, because I, I think people understand that, right? So if you buy something that's worth, you know, $1 and you, hope, you hold on to it and hope that it grows and now it's worth $10, you have value. I think what was confusing or what is remains confusing for a lot of taxpayers is the thing that you mentioned first, which is the idea that initially this was going to be this peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchange of value. And the IRS treats that the same way. So if I spend my Bitcoin to buy your services as a divorce attorney, when I spend that money, I've incurred a transaction. And um, it's a capital gains transaction. And that's really difficult, I think, for taxpayers to understand and also to make sense of on their taxes and also to keep track of, right? Because it, it could change. Well, especially, you know, we look at the Bitcoin numbers, um, they, they change all of the time. They're not $12,000 all of the time. So how do you tell taxpayers or what advice do you give to folks who have interest in either investing or in using it as a peer-to-peer -peer currency? Like, how do you track it? What do you do? What should you be aware of? Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. And you're exactly right. It's, it's very confusing, especially for someone who's new in the space. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, getting back to the genesis of Bitcoin as a peer to peer payment system, just like when I spend cash, I'm not incurring a taxable event on the appreciation or depreciation of the dollar, right? right. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the IRS really came out, like you said, in 2014, with their first guidance. And at that point, Bitcoin was already, to give credit to the IRS, it was being used as an investment. And so I, I think it's completely fair that it's taxed as an investment because people are using it to grow their wealth. Um, it, it's truly being used as an investment. Right. And so 
in the beginning, right, I kind of talked about how it came about, but the use case for Bitcoin has changed over time. And I think it's going to continue to trend in the direction of being an investment, being a way to store wealth or, you know, allow your wealth to increase similar to gold. And so, so that's that. So I, I think it's perfectly fine how the IRS treats it. For people just listening to this, you should think of it much more as a type of gold, a type of investment. And thus, when you're disposing of your Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency, you do have a taxable event. You realize a gain or loss on it. Now, things that people should be aware of. First of all, you should be aware that if you're putting money into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, that you will have tax reporting requirements, right? That's just number one thing you need to know. Right. Most people who get in the space don't actually know that. The other thing that's just very important is keep good records of, number one, the places you're buying and selling cryptocurrency. Most people use exchanges like Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, right? This is just somewhere where I can go to buy, sell, trade cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. like Bitcoin. So keep good records from those exchanges and then keep any records of gifts, payments, any transactions you um, sent or received to people outside of that exchange. And the moral of the story is good record keeping. And then it's really not that hard once year end comes around to do your tax reporting on your cryptocurrencies. So I don't want to like scare anyone away. It's oh, sure. Yeah. That difficult. But that was a lot. So I'll let you uh, come back in. But that's kind of how I think about it. Right. Well, one of the things, so since you brought up Coinbase, one of the things I think that people thought in the early kind of days of crypto, especially because, you know, we mentioned those dates and it's funny because they seem like short periods of time, but in, in the tax and digital worlds they are actually really long periods of time. So people started to be aware of Bitcoin in 2009. IRS didn't give that guidance until 2014. And then even so, that, so that's five years. And then they took another five years before they started to do kind of their crypto compliance campaigns. So it's only been a decade, but the IRS has realized that there are a lot of people not reporting. Now, some of it, I do think, as you and I just discussed, is that it's because it's complicated and people didn't understand. And the IRS, for all that I understand, this is a complicated topic for a lot of uh, agencies and, and, and taxpayers, the IRS did drag their feet on issuing that guidance. They had been asked several times to issue guidance because people were confused about how to report. So I think that kind of what happened is you, you ended up with this situation where, you know, the IRS finally issued the guidance and then you didn't hear much about it. And then all of a sudden in 2019, it became a thing. So I think on the one hand, you had this lack of compliance on the part of taxpayers, partially because of confusion, partially because there had been a lack of voicing that this is a taxable event. I think the IRS wasn't as aggressive uh, promoting the, um, the reporting as they are now. Um, and so you had these folks that had not reported for a while. And we talked about the idea that this is, uh, you know, you don't have the bank that's doing the reporting, but there are the exchanges. And so going back to Coinbase you know, there was a big court case that was uh, kind of all uh, all over the the place in, in 2019, where the IRS decided that folks were not reporting and they wanted to find out who it was that wasn't reporting. And so they couldn't go to Wells Fargo or, um, you know, Mellon Bank and say, give me your client list. They went to the exchanges. And uh, Coinbase was one of those exchanges where the IRS went and said, 
you know, we want your information. And there was a lot of back and forth about how much information was appropriate and, and the breadth of the subpoena. But I think that that was the first kind of light bulb moment for a lot of taxpayers that this wasn't completely anonymous. Because I do think that was one of the ways that crypto has sort of, you know, sold itself is that it's anonymous, even though you know it's not and the IRS knows it's not. So in terms of, you know, reporting and understanding who knows what can, and I know it's a complicated concept, but can you kind of explain how the IRS can find out if you don't report? Yes. So you're exactly right. Right now, the main way that they are going about detecting, we'll call it non-compliance, is at the exchange level. So cryptocurrency exchanges, again, places where you can go buy, sell, trade cryptocurrencies. Um, historically, when they first came around, right, anyone could sign up, create an account, buy their first Bitcoin. But as time progresses, right, regulars catch up and know your customer requirements have been enforced essentially across all U.S. cryptocurrency exchanges, which means that I have to upload a government-issued ID to even create an account at a cryptocurrency exchange like Coinbase. So as you alluded to, when, you know, the IRS comes knocking at Coinbase's door and sues them for, you know, some of these customer records, you know, that's how they're able to detect who's buying, selling, trading cryptocurrencies. And they can quickly see, you know, cross-reference that on their tax return. Well, did they report any cryptocurrency related income? If not, you know, that's automatically a red flag in one of those warning letters that happened, you know, last year. And they're actually happening again right now will go out. Another thing is 1099 information reporting has started being implemented at the exchange level. Now, a lot more guidance and enforcement and requirements is going to come, I'd say, in the next one, two, three years regarding what type of 1099 reporting should be required. Right now, exchanges who do participate in 1099 information reporting do so willingly and kind of to cover their own, you know, uh, liabilities. Um, Right, right. But that form in and of itself, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, very confusing for the taxpayers. But it is a way that, you know, if I'm a Coinbase customer and I have over X amount of trades, I will get a 1099K at the end of the year. And of course, the IRS will also get a copy of that. So that's another tool that they're using. If they see, hey, David, we got a 1099K from him, but no cryptocurrency related income was reported. Boom, that's a red flag. Let's send him a warning letter. Etc. So those are a couple things. Now we can go one layer deep, which is past the centralized exchange level like Coinbase, right, is the blockchain technology that all of these cryptocurrencies are built off of. Mm-hmm. And without getting too in the weeds in from a technological perspective, there are tools um, out there that, you know, enable government agencies, really anyone to scan these blockchains because they're completely public and start piecing together the transactions, who has what, and it can all be accounted to certain wallet addresses. So that technology is being built out too. So, you know, you can't run, you can't hide from the past man, but those are kind of a few of the ways that it's happening today. Why do you think the IRS has its eyes on crypto? I, I know that there has been a lot of consternation within the industry because they feel like IRS is sending a message that they believe that crypto is being used for illegal activities, which we know that it is on some level, because obviously bad guys are going to take advantage of technology too, right? But why do you think that the IRS, um, well, so maybe a two-part question. One, why do you think that that 
reputation is what it is that crypto because there is still kind of this uh, stigma that if you're using crypto, you must be hiding something. So why do you think that stigma exists? And why do you think IRS has been so public about going after these crypto transactions? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think early in its history, again, going back to 2009, 2010, 2011, it very much was used as this black market way to skirt under the radar of, you know, modern day anti-money laundering regulations, right? And so you, you have examples like the Silk Road, right, where Bitcoin was used to, you know, harbor illicit activity. And so that does give it a bad name in the early days. But again, as you kind of mentioned, technology is always going to use by bad guys, right? The internet is a great example. People use cars to rob banks, but we don't we don't take those things away. <laughs> right. The the benefits they can they can provide. And crypto is very similar. Um, it's used for way more, um, I would say, good things than the illegal stuff. And the illegal stuff is getting cracked down upon quickly, right? Like I said, know your customer stuff. Um, right. anti-money and the Twitter laundry. hack, the recent Twitter hack was yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, it all yeah. gets a bad name, but I promise it's not, it's, it's, it's much less bad than good happens using the technology. So that's, yeah, kind of what I would say there. So speaking, so since you mentioned, you know, that it does have this, uh, this stigma, but maybe it's not well-deserved. So if I'm in my car right now and I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, I'm convinced. I think that I want to give crypto a try. How do you evaluate the different currencies available? Because although we mentioned the, the bigger ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ripple, I mean, there are more than 2000 uh, virtual currencies out there. So how do you evaluate them in terms of which are legit, which are maybe going to stick around? Because it's, you know, it's, it's hard because when you look at something like a stock, you know, there, there are there are ways that you can evaluate a stock because it's regulated. And the whole idea of crypto is that it's deregulated. So, so how can you evaluate those different cryptocurrencies? And then kind of part two would be once you've done that, if you want to invest, how do you go about doing that? Yes. So great questions and a lot there. But the big thing how do you evaluate certain cryptocurrencies? Like you said, there's, there's now thousands of them. 99% of these are going to go to zero and they don't have actually any tangible value, but a small subset definitely, definitely do, right? So in terms of how do you evaluate value, the biggest thing is the community and the network effect that it's creating, right? So, so that's how you know anything is going to increase in value, like Bitcoin, right? Millions of people all over the world over the past you know, 10 plus years have, you know, essentially decided a Bitcoin has value and they've joined into this network. And so the Bitcoin network and ecosystem and community is massive now, right? Mm -hmm. And the same is not true for a lot of smaller cryptocurrencies. So that's one way, right, is the value of a currency actually grows exponentially with the size of the, the network, okay? Okay. The other way is... So well, the way I like to explain it, okay, so the cryptocurrencies, a lot of them are trying to be this new platform to enable development. Okay, I'm going to try to break this down. So you may have heard of Ethereum, okay? Mm -hmm. And really the whole, the whole Ethereum goal 
is to essentially enable a new computing platform, just like the iPhone was a new computing platform that allowed companies like Uber, Snapchat, Instagram to become billion dollar companies. Right. If the Ethereum network is trying to become a new way to build applications that were not possible to build prior to that technology. So a great example is, again, decentralization. What types of applications are possible when I don't have to trust that Kelly is going to pay me this money, right? It's coded into the, the protocol and you know, blockchain can verify, yes, Kelly sent David 20 Ether, so do this, okay? And this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but these protocols are trying to create this new computing platform. If you look over time, every time there's been a new platform to compute, billions of dollars of economic value have been created, right? You have the personal computers and then, you know, software companies like Microsoft and Intel come around. And then you right. have, right, the, the internet comes in Airbnb, Facebook, Google, Netflix, right? It always spurs this insane amount of economic value. And this is why so many people are so excited about blockchain cryptocurrencies, because once the nuts and bolts and the infrastructure gets built, a lot of people believe that it's going to spur an enormous amount of economic development because certain applications that were never possible will now become possible. And it's, it's because of this decentralized and no need for trust. Now, that's a long-winded answer to, again, <laughs> the question of how do you determine what's legit, what's not. But, but it's important because if you're determining what's legit, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem, what they're trying to accomplish with this project is very legit. And millions of people are developing applications on this protocol. So I don't know if that's going to be helpful for the, for the person in the car. There's a lot to unpack there, but it's very interesting. And if you can be at the bleeding edge, there's always opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like then for folks who are dipping their toe in, who haven't done this before, that you should look for the bigger, well-established currencies like like Ether, Bitcoin, something like that. So if I wanted to buy Bitcoin, how do I do it? Yeah, so the easiest way is going to just quickly create an account with a centralized exchange, like we mentioned a couple, Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken. Um, and it's, it's literally like making any account with any platform on the internet, right? Now you're going to have to upload your driver's license, like I said, because of the know your customer requirements. But as long as you're not <laughs> trying to use this for money laundering, that's no problem. And then you can literally just swipe your credit card or debit card, um, you know, input that and buy your first amount of Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You could buy $100 worth of Bitcoin and just let that stay. Um, and, you know, maybe over the years that will accrue in value. Um, but the easiest way for the person who just wants to explore or maybe, you know, get a better understanding is to just, you know, make an account with a cryptocurrency exchange. Gotcha. And if you're doing it in a lot of different levels, like stock, you, you know, you, you don't buy everything on the first day, right? You, you buy some today, and then maybe you buy some in another week, or you allow it to roll over. There's lots of different ways that you can grow. How do you keep track of all of that? If I mean, you you mentioned that some of the exchanges are going to be issuing uh, forms ten ninety nine, but they are not required as you as you noted to do it, and they are doing it voluntarily. I think mostly a lot of them just want to avoid those subpoenas. Right. But um, but you know, how does how does a taxpayer keep keep track of all of that? Yeah. So if you're using 
centralized exchanges like Coinbase, which let me be clear, like 95%, that's the use case, right? They sign up for an exchange, they use that to buy, sell, trade. That exchange will give you a transaction history. You know, you can download all of your transaction history from the dawn of time with that exchange. And you can use that information, you know, to easily calculate your capital gains and capital losses when you're disposing of these capital assets, quote unquote. Okay. And so for someone who, you know, let's say they bought Bitcoin at $100, maybe then they bought some more at $200, right? Three months later, let's say they sell $100 worth, but at the time, maybe it's actually worth $500, okay? Depending on what costing methodology we're using, right? First in, first out, last in, first out. We'll take the cost basis from the fair market value at the time of the trade, and that, that uh, residual will be your gain or loss. So again, the, the mechanics behind doing the tax is very simple, okay? But when you start mixing in some more complicated use cases, maybe someone has multiple cryptocurrency exchange accounts and they are sending cryptocurrency to one another, the data can kind of get fragmented. And that's where software like CryptoTrader.tax has been built to solve that problem. Um, what does it help you do? So CryptoTrader.tax is like the TurboTax for both cryptocurrency investors, users, and also for tax professionals who are maybe helping clients. But really what it does is it pulls in a user's transaction history from all of the exchanges or platforms they've used to buy, sell, trade cryptocurrency. It pulls it in with the click of a button. It normalizes all that data so you don't have to make sense of it. And it spits back your necessary tax forms like form 8949, right, which is detailing your capital gains and capital losses. It's pretty simple. And that actually, that form is the one that kind of triggered a lot of this investigation from the IRS, because when they started looking at the numbers of those forms that they were receiving, and then they were looking at the numbers of currency transactions that were happening, they didn't match up. And so they figured that folks were underreporting. And so, you know, now there is this push to make sure that people are compliant. Um, and again, on the, the 1040, the new draft, it's, it's the front page question, which I've actually kind of alluded to before when it was going to be on a separate schedule, that this was reminiscent to me of offshore, like when the IRS said that they were going to go looking for offshore assets and they made it into a multi-year campaign where they dedicated a lot of resources to kind of uh, seeking out people who weren't reporting correctly. And, and you could see that kind of coming down the pike. And then the question about whether or not you've used virtual currency is very, very similar to that question that you see on your Schedule B about whether or not you have any foreign assets. So I think that signals to me and a lot of other tax practitioners that this is not just a, we're going to send out 10,000 letters in 2019 and send some follow-up in 2020, that this is going to be an ongoing campaign. Are you hearing the same kinds of chatter in your circles, like that this is going to be, IRS is, is going to be more um, diligent about following up? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's pretty wild. And the, the last year, right, so 2019 into 2020 has been the most activity from like an enforcement level standpoint from the IRS and making moves to you know, both set themselves up to go after people who are non-reporting and kind of intentionally write that the the question on now 1040 is a great one, right? Under penalty of perjury now, everyone, every American taxpayer has to check yes or no to did you transact with virtual currency? Right. 
now they have the the ability to criminally prosecute people who intentionally are answering that incorrectly and anyways to answer your question yes it's becoming so much more a target for the irs and we're seeing that very much now it's very good for a business like us like the irs is sending us a lot of customers right <laughs> sure so we don't mind but we we also do want to you know help a lot of people and just make it easier to get into this world right so now I have a philosophical question for you, sure. which um, is kind of, so I actually, I uh, have a lot of folks who I um, chat with pretty commonly about crypto because when this first broke, I was covering a lot of the story. So I, I met with a lot of folks who were involved with it. And one of the things that people used to tout a lot is it's not regulated, it's not centralized, it's mostly anonymous. Some of the increased compliance initiatives suggest that while it might not be regulated, and I'm, if you could see me, I'm using air quotes, but while it might not be regulated, there it is the transactions are going to be monitored on some level. Does that lend itself to maybe being the antithesis of what crypto was created to be? I know that sound again, it's kind of philosophical, but you know, if, if the idea of crypto is that you don't need banks and you don't need centralization, and now the IRS comes along and says, but we want you to report it all. And to report it all, the exchanges are now going to start issuing forms. Like, does that kind of take away from sort of the at least initial pro-crypto arguments? Yes. So Depending on who you ask in the community, right, they will be up in arms about this question. Okay. Folks like me, you know, we fall under the camp that, hey, regulation, clarity in terms of guidance, laws, rules, it's a very good thing. Why? Because it allows everyday modern investors, people to feel much more comfortable bringing wealth, money, investment into the asset class. And, you know, we've only touched the surface of you know, the implications of this technology. But that's a good thing, right? If, if we make it easier to bring new people into the space doing interesting things, that's very good for the space in general. Now, of course, you'll have people in the other camp who, again, crypto was born out of this anti-state, you know, libertarian movement, right? right? A lot of those people still exist and they'd be up in arms about, you know, me saying that. And so it's hard to give a definite answer for sure. But the way that I see it trending, you know, governments aren't going to be uh, overthrown anytime soon, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then at the end of the day, we still do need community services, roads, police people, firemen, right? So obviously, taxes are necessary, right? And I think most people can agree with that. I mean, not everyone will. And so in a new digital asset world, right, where a lot of different assets have become fully digitized, you still will need a system to remit, track, and pay taxes, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the, the Coinbase folks kind of uh, came down to when they were responding to the subpoenas. I mean, they felt they were overbroad, but they did basically say like, the whole point of crypto, at least on their platform, wasn't to hide anything. It was to promote the currency. And so if you're going to, um, you know, reporting isn't the same thing as taking away the the peer-to-peer the -peer 
nature of the transaction. But there was a lot of, I've, I have seen a lot of folks who do go back and forth on this. And, and I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there's no right answer, right? So there's going to be people who are going to argue both sides. But there is a real um, sense of the more you make it legitimate is, is maybe taking away from some of the innovation and, and, uh, and the anonymity, uh, anonymity and, and the kind of the early seeds of, of how it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I've been very kind to the regulators, I feel like on this podcast, but you know, they have, there's a lot of red tape in building in this space, especially in the U S and we see a lot of businesses, a lot of great company, a lot of innovation, you know, being exported to countries that are more kind to, you know, technology innovation. And that's sad to see again, there's right. the good, there's, there's likely a way to meet in the middle but that is my one critique of the folks, the regulators, right, who are passing stuff. They're making it harder for people to build, right, entrepreneurs. And, you know, there's a fine line between making things safe and enabling builders to build. And, you know, the U.S. was founded on builders building. So that's my one critique is we need to make it a little bit easier for builders to build. Otherwise, it's only going to be people like Coinbase who have the resources now to spend millions and millions of dollars on lawyers and, you know, uh, people who have to decipher this stuff. That's me on my soapbox. For no, no, I, I totally get it. And, and there have been some uh, meetings, some committee meetings with uh, Congress and, and also, I think, behind the scenes conversation with IRS about how you can, you know, continue to promote enforcement while not discouraging growth. So I, I do think this is going to be something that, you know, folks are going to be talking about for, for a long time. So, um, you know, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the program and explaining a little bit of what is admittedly a really complicated uh, <laughs> area and also one that's constantly changing. I think that's what makes it maybe um, a, a bit more complex than gold, right, is that it is constantly changing. So I do appreciate your time. If people wanted to find out more about you or about your company, where should they go? Yeah, the best spot is just cryptotrader.tax. So that's the website that you know our company's on. Um, happy to answer any emails or questions from anyone. My email is just david at cryptotrader.tax. But thank you for having me on. And then lastly, we're going to, I think, link just our step or our complete guide to cryptocurrency taxes. It's just a long blog post kind of walking through the basics uh, in the show notes. So people are happy to check out that as well. Yeah, that would be great. So when you guys, um, for those of you who don't always check the show notes, that's where you'll see the description of the show. And we'll have links both to uh, David's company and to those resources. Again, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really valuable. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Have a good one. Thanks, you too. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at TaxGirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.